Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Gas prices are averaging over $5 a gallon. The White House is now calling on oil companies to increase capacity for less profit. The oil industry striking back today, pointing to what they call misguided policies. Families of January 6 detainees are speaking out what they are saying, and what are House Republicans telling us about the ongoing hearings? Senators held a hearing today on how to protect children from criminals who commit violence with guns. The monster in Santa Fe went through an unlocked back door. The monster in Uvalde went through an open back door. LGBT pride events facing backlash for exposing children to sexual scenes. And police in Idaho are investigating whether a dancer indecently exposed himself to kids at one of these events. The head of a Cuban exile organization sues Netflix, accusing the streaming service of spreading propaganda for the Cuban regime in the film Wasp Network. This is the second lawsuit filed by a Cuban exile over the film. President Biden and oil refiners are at odds over the reason behind soaring gas prices. The White House sent a letter to major oil companies pushing them to produce more oil for less profit. The American Petroleum Institute responded, saying a misguided policy agenda from the White House is driving up costs. NTD's Melina Wisecup has more. $5 per gallon is now the average cost for gas. The president facing mounting pressure over these soaring prices is now pinning the responsibility on oil refineries. Biden sent a letter to major companies accusing them of price gouging and calling on them to increase their capacity to refine more oil while lowering the costs. And he wants to hear from the refineries, the, ref the companies who are doing refining, to see what is the bottleneck and how we can increase supply. In a bid to dampen these skyrocketing gas costs, this week the administration announced they're selling 45 million barrels of crude oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve as part of their plan to release 1 million barrels a day for six months. But these efforts have not yet lowered the price at the pump. In his letter, the president acknowledged that his efforts to lower costs aren't working. But he said that the companies are to blame, writing, quote, the lack of refining capacity and resulting unprecedented refinery profit margins are blunting the impact of the historic actions my administration has taken to address Vladimir Putin's price hike. The American Petroleum Institute pushed back, saying that it's the White House's, quote, misguided policy of turning away from domestic energy that has added headwinds to their efforts to ramp up production. The Energy Institute offered the White House 10 solutions for lowering costs, including lifting development restrictions and ending permitting obstructions, among others. Senator Marco Rubio tells us that the White House's aggressive push to transition to renewable energy is compounding the issue. So when you tell someone that a facility that you need to run at least 15 years to make to break even is not going to be needed in 10 or 15 years because of Green New Deals and energy, why would somebody build a refinery or, or operate one? And some lawmakers say the solution is to walk a middle path between renewable energy and encouraging oil production. And I think we need to do both, and what we believe is that it's not either or and 
and it, it's a false choice to say it's it's taking on making sure we deal with climate change and, uh, and, and oil and gas prices. We believe we can do both. But we haven't seen that there's enough lawmakers willing to walk that middle path, at least not enough in order to come to an agreement on a proposal that could effectively lower energy costs. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And now to the January 6th hearings. While the hearings are back in the spotlight, families of those still detained for the Capitol breach are speaking out. Plus, what are House Republicans telling us about the hearings? NTD's Iris Tao brings us more. As the January 6th hearings make national headlines, another group is speaking out. My husband has not seen his children in 514 days. My children do not remember what their father looks like. Families of those detained following the Capitol breach say the inmates are not given a fair and speedy trial, adding that the conditions at the D.C. jail are worrisome. The drinking water visibly dirty, mold was visible in cells, and roaches lived amongst them. Some House Republicans standing alongside them calling for more attention. I do not agree with anything that happened that day, but these people have been charged and they are now being persecuted. They have made their initial appearance, but the speedy trial rights guaranteed under the Constitution have been abrogated. This as a family member says she's concerned that the current hearings could sway the trial's outcome. And we are not going to get a fair trial in D.C because of the one-sided narrative. And Congressman Louis Gomer tells me he thinks the hearings are partisan. So what do you think about all the focus and resources being devoted to the January 6th hearing now, given what you're talking about is all still happening? Well, it is really tragic. I don't recall ever having such a partisan investigation, and they refused to allow the other party to put people on there. That's, that's just unheard of. All this as a self-proclaimed tourist interrupts the Wednesday press conference. Hey, I've got a question. How come I have to travel 2,000 miles to hear this news? Why can't CBS, CNN, MSNBC cover this? Why? These stories are horrific. I would think the national media would try to find an answer to this. Meanwhile, the next January 6th hearing is slated for Thursday. The committee says it will show how former President Donald Trump pressured then-Vice President Mike Pence not to certify the election results. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. And on inflation, the Federal Reserve today imposed the largest rate hike in decades as part of efforts to tame high inflation. NTD's Steve Lance has the details. Today, the Federal Open Market Committee raised its policy interest rate by three-quarters of a percentage point and anticipates that ongoing increases in that rate will be appropriate. In addition, we are continuing the process of significantly reducing the size of our balance sheet. The move the Fed announced comes after its latest policy meeting with Federal Open Market Committee. The committee officials agreed to increase the Fed Fund's target range to 1.5% and 1.75%. This is the rate that banks charge each other for overnight borrowing, affecting consumer borrowing such as credit cards and home equity loans. We at the Fed understand the hardship that high inflation is causing. We're strongly committed to bringing inflation back down, and we're moving expeditiously to do so. The Fed increased its inflation forecast this year from 4.3 percent in March 
to 5.2%. The central bank sees inflation slowing to 2.6% next year. Moving now to the issue of guns, senators listened to a variety of witnesses who gave testimony today on how to protect children from criminals who commit acts of violence with guns. A police chief, a teenager from Chicago, and a parent of a school shooting victim all testified before the committee. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. The monster in Parkland went through an unlocked back door. The monster in Santa Fe went through an unlocked back door. The monster in Uvalde went through an open back door. Senator Ted Cruz went on to say that the most important security tool is having armed law enforcement on campus. Senator Dick Durbin directed his question to the chief of the Phoenix Police Department. Is there a response that you would think could make it safer for the police that you represent? So thank you, Chairman Durbin, for that question. Uh, we are outgunned. We're outgunned. We're outmanned. We're outstaffed. Um, we do need responsible gun legislation. We do believe that there should be a ban on assault weapons and high-capacity magazines in order for us to properly serve our and protect our community. Amy Swearer, who is a legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, didn't agree with the police chief on this issue. Banning certain semi-automatic firearms or standard capacity magazines are not serious solutions, and they're based more on irrational fear than on data or on the Constitution. Schools have access right now to over $100 billion in already allocated COVID relief funds. They can and should be able to use it in the short term to hire mental health professionals and invest in physical security needs as a short-term solution. Ernest Willingham decided to attend a university away from his home city of Chicago. Ask any young person in Chicago, how many weddings have you attended? Very few would have attended one. However, most have attended at least a dozen funerals. Max Schachter's son was killed in a school shooting. I traveled the country in search of solutions, and what I found was that while some school districts seem well prepared for acts of gun violence, too many of them had the complacent attitude that Parkland had, that it won't happen here. Schachter recommended teachers and school leaders to be proactive about security. He also advocated for the creation of a federal clearinghouse or online database for best practices and other resources on school safety. Jason Perry, NTD News. Police are investigating a dancer at an LGBT pride event for allegedly exposing his genitals on stage when children were watching. And controversial videos taken at the Los Angeles pride event this past weekend are getting a lot of attention for similar reasons. Here are the details. And a warning, some of viewers may find the following footage disturbing due to its graphic content. According to local media outlet KXLY, the Coeur d'Alene Police Department in Idaho is investigating whether a dancer exposed his genitals during the Pride in the Park event on Saturday. Police say people called and reported the dancer. Authorities have contacted the performer and are supposed to report their findings to the city prosecutor's office. This video circulating on Twitter appears to show the dancer performing in front of an audience that includes many young children. This is the same Pride event that was allegedly targeted by 31 members of the nationalist group Patriot Front. They were arrested and charged with conspiracy to riot. And this is not the only Pride event in recent days drawing people's attention online. Christina Aguilera wore a fake penis during her performance at the Los Angeles Pride in the Park event on Saturday. Children were allowed at this event. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene reacted in her live stream on Wednesday. It's actually damaging 
for children in every single way possible. And this is what the left wants. They want to, they want this to be what kids think is normal. They want this to be what kids think is appropriate. And that is the most inappropriate video. I, I it should be banned. And videos by investigative reporter Drew Hernandez from the Los Angeles Pride Parade on Sunday appear to show children exposed to sexualized and graphic scenes. Several videos appear to show women encourage their young children to look at and interact with nearly naked men and drag queens. The organizers of LA Pride promoted this as an all-age event and didn't set any minimum age requirement. Congresswoman Green says she is introducing a bill to make exposing children to drag queen performances illegal. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. A second Cuban exile is suing Netflix over its spy thriller Wasp Network, which claims to be based on a true story. Cuban exiles Ana Margarita Martinez and Jose Basulto say the film whitewashes and revises the true events of their lives. The movie tells a story about Basulto's organization Brothers to the Rescue, which assists Cuban rafters trying to escape communist Cuba into the U.S. In the 1996, two of the organization's planes were shot down upon an order from the Cuban regime. It ultimately turns out that Martinez's husband is involved in the plot and that he's a spy for the communist regime. But the lawsuits say the film rewrites history and in the process tries to justify the regime's crimes of espionage against the United States. I spoke with Ana Martinez's attorney, Leon Herzl, to, find, to learn more about the cases. Leon, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Good to see you. Jose Basulto and your client Ana Martinez are claiming that Netflix is spreading defamatory and pro-Cuban regime propaganda. What about this is defamatory and what about this is propaganda? That, that's a very good question. What makes this film defamatory is the way that it is marketed and portrayed as based on real life events and using the actual names of the people that are depicted in the film and in such a way that it completely distorts the true history of what happened with the Brothers to the Rescue planes and the Cuban spies uh, that were infiltrated into the United States and their spy work led to the shooting down of the two Brothers to the Rescue planes in 1996. Basically, the story, uh, the fictional story in the movie that is portrayed as based on real life events and leads the viewers to believe that it is uh, actually based on real life events. Um, the, the film itself tries to justify the work done by the Cuban spies in such a way that they disparage um, the Cuban exile community and those that are featured in the film uh, and make the Cuban spies who were in reality convicted of serious federal crimes in the United States it romanticizes them, it glorifies them, and the movie does its best to justify the work that was done by them that led to the shooting down of the two planes. Can you give a specific example of how the film twists the true events? Uh, one clear example is the way that the Brothers to the Rescue organization is portrayed uh, and referenced throughout the film as terrorists. Uh, and there's one specific scene where a Brothers to the Rescue plane is flying over the Gulf and uh, 
basically assisting armed mercenaries in a boat to get to Cuba to do a terrorist attack on a Cuban beach, which is all completely false. Um, basically, the film shows the Brothers to the Rescue plane uh, on the lookout for the Coast Guard and alerting the boat to the presence of Coast Guards uh, so that they can arrive to the beach and do their terrorist act. Um, and this never happened. Brothers to the Rescue was a humanitarian organization that provided uh, food and supplies to Cuban rafters uh, that escaped Cuba and were attempting to come to the United States. So what if the movie didn't say it was based on a true story and used different identities for the characters? Would, would Anna have been okay with that? Yeah, if the, if the movie does not have her and Mr. Basulto identified with their real names, and if the movie did not say that it was based on real-life events, and it's just a fictional movie, then I don't see why anybody would have a problem because they're not identified in the movie. Okay, if Anna and Jose lose their lawsuits, how could this impact them and the history of their stories? The problem here is that the movie, again, portrays this as real-life events. And people are that watch the movie, the viewers, uh, are led to believe that this is real history, uh, even though it's not in any of the actual history books and is uh, contrary to the public records and the court cases and everything that is currently out there. If you were to research these events, you would see what really happened. But um, for those that have not done that research and happen to watch this movie, they believe that this is uh, you know, real history and, right it's, and it's not real history. So it, it goes beyond uh, Anna Margarita and Jose Basulto uh, to more of a, an overall historical distortion uh, that is being committed here with respect to this film. Part of this movie was filmed in Cuba, and in order to film in Cuba, they had to get permission from the Cuban regime. Do you think this could have affected the way the story was told? There is a law in Cuba that, number one, any films that are shot in Cuba uh, cannot disparage or cast Cuba in a negative light, and they have to be approved by Cuba. Uh, so uh, the movie was either originally in line with Cuban propaganda, or it came into line with Cuban propaganda during the time that it was being filmed in Cuba. A significant portion of this film, uh, it was in fact filmed in Cuba. They had access to the Cuban um, uh, organization, the Cuban government buildings, even the fighter jets, the, the MiGs in the plane uh, were borrowed from the Cuban government. Uh, so the Cuban government had a big hand uh, in the making of the film and in, with respect to all films, they censor and uh, make sure that it's in line with their propaganda. Leon Herzl, thank you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Coming up, thousands of migrants on their way to the U.S. border. What else could be coming with them? A former DEA special agent in charge lays out his concerns. And a federal court has ruled that a school's dress code policy discriminates against girls because they have to wear something that boys don't. Navigating a world of economic madness, you need to have the right guide. 
What did today's decisions mean for your tomorrow? We ask why. What's the alternative? Uncover the deeper reasons and the hidden influences and highlight the real opportunities for profit. At Entity Business, we connect the dots for you. Good evening. Although the largest migrant caravan of the year heading for the U.S. has largely dispersed, most are reportedly still trying to cross the border. That's after Mexican authorities on Saturday announced they had issued thousands of temporary documents and travel visas. But it's not only people crossing the border. Earlier today, I spoke with former DEA special agent in charge Derek Maltz to learn more about the fentanyl crisis. Derek, thanks for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. This is a very important topic. Mexican authorities say they've disbanded a migrant caravan that was headed toward the U.S., but the caravan's organizer told Fox News the migrants are still coming. Do you think the Mexican president actually gave the migrants the go-ahead by giving them temporary travel visas? Well, I believe it's just a public relations stunt to make it look like they're doing something proactive to prevent all of these illegals to come into America. But the reality is, is they're coming full speed ahead. Joe Biden has welcomed the world. And it's not just Mexicans and, you know, Central Americans. It's from over 160 countries around the world invading America. A huge amount of deadly fentanyl typically gets smuggled across the border in connection with people caravans. Could you explain how that works? Well, we have actually record levels of fentanyl poisonings in America. Families are waking up. We're losing 295 Americans a day from these deadly drugs. And if you, if you think about it, it's almost like a chemical weapon attack against our, our kids, our future generation. The cartels are taking total advantage of the weaknesses and the vulnerabilities at the southern border, and they're bringing this stuff in at record levels. I mean, last year alone, the CBP seized over 11,000 pounds of fentanyl. It only takes two milligrams of fentanyl to kill, you know, an adult, right, or a kid. So you're looking at massive amounts. The DEA administrator put out a warning and said that last year the DEA seized enough fentanyl to kill every American. There were over 20 million fake pills that were seized. And the DEA lab analysis revealed that 40% of the pills contained a potentially lethal dose of fentanyl. So we have a national security crisis at that border, in addition to the humanitarian crisis. Do you think more fentanyl is now headed for the U.S., considering the caravan seems to be going forward? Absolutely. Look, Washington, D.C., I live up here, nation's capital. They had 29 overdoses June 8th and June 9th. It was just reported. We have a frightening nationwide trend. The DEA today is having a, a family summit in their headquarters to talk about this dangerous, frightening trend. Look at the Will County, Illinois coroner. Last week, they had 10 dead on Monday and Tuesday, a 24-hour period. Then they lost three more later in the week. We have it all over the country. I follow this closely. But Congress just put forth a resolution to designate fentanyl as a weapon of mass destruction. They're working with the families against fentanyl. And because it's killing at record levels, we never had a terrorist organization in the history of America killing Americans like this. 
So we're making some progress, but it's so slow, and every day we're losing 300. Most fentanyl comes into the U.S. from Mexico, but many of the ingredients for manufacturing fentanyl have typically come from China. Is that still the case? Absolutely. I mean, China really started this madness around 2012, 2013. They started flooding our streets with this poisonous substance that they were making in Wuhan-style labs in China. And then the last administration put a lot of pressure on China exporting all these fentanyl analogs into America through the mail services and the dark web and the internet, right? So they started getting smart and they started exporting multi-ton quantities of precursor chemicals right to the cartels. You got to remember, China had an existing relationship with the cartels for years with the chemicals to produce methamphetamine. So now they just expanded to the key ingredients for the production of fentanyl. So the drug traffickers are taking advantage of producing these synthetic drugs in labs as opposed to doing plant-based drugs, which is much more labor-intensive, way more expensive. Now they're taking advantage of the addicted population, but they're killing our kids at record levels. We have recreational users. We have first-time users that are dying instantly. And we have a lot of, you know, celebrities, professional athletes. It's just going to continue until we do something. And right now, the White House and Congress, they're not really even talking about it. What do you think Biden should do to end the fentanyl crisis in the U.S.? Well, for one, he's got to treat it like a chemical attack on our country, because that's what it is. There's never been in the history of this country this many dead Americans from substances coming in from overseas, right? So he's got to talk about it. He's got to get rid of those 10 or 15-year-old talking points. This is no longer just overprescribing of prescription drugs, right, which should have been addressed 10 years ago. This is about chemicals being produced in labs, the cartels working with Chinese transnational criminals. And by the way, as Congressman McCall said to me and to, to my friends in Congress not too long ago, this is the greatest strategic plan for China. They can use the cartels as proxies to kill off the Americans' future generation. It's a brilliant plan. It's working. And the U.S. has to wake up. And our, and our taxpayers that, that put these people in office every year have to demand accountability. Derek Maltz, former DEA agent in charge, thank you. Thank you very much. According to the Center for Immigration Studies, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has reminded his Mexican counterpart of a bilateral agreement they signed in April. Abbott reportedly made clear he will bring back the truck safety inspections that almost shut down U.S.-Mexico trade on five international bridges. That's if Mexico doesn't work in good faith to stop the caravan participants from crossing into the U.S. And staying in Texas, Republicans picked up a House seat by winning a special election in a Democratic stronghold. Mayra Flores secured over 50% of the vote to beat the top contender, Democrat Dan Sanchez, avoiding a runoff. Flores will fill the spot left vacant in Texas's 34th district since Democrat Philemon Vela resigned in March. Flores is an immigrant from Mexico married to a Border Patrol officer and the first Mexican-born woman to serve in Congress. She campaigned as a pro-life and pro-Second Amendment candidate. Flores will face a much tougher challenge in November's general election when she runs against Vicente Gonzalez. 
for the 34th district's full term, an area where voters have commonly voted Democrat over the last hundred years. And in a North Carolina school case, a federal court has ruled that a charter school violated female co students' constitutional rights by requiring them to wear skirts. But some members of the court disagreed. And TV's Arlene Richards has the story. Charter Day School is a management company that operates four charter schools in North Carolina. For 22 years, it has been providing a classical education to students from kindergarten to eighth grade. The school's dress code policy requires girls to wear skirts. But in 2015, parent Bonnie Peltier complained and later filed a lawsuit. Peltier says the policy discriminates against her daughter based on her gender and sends a message that girls are not equal to boys. In a 10-6 opinion, a federal court agreed, ruling that the school's policy is unconstitutional and treats girls differently because of their sex. The school's president and his attorney said in an email, We respectfully disagree with the majority's opinion. As the six dissenting judges powerfully explain, the majority opinion contradicts Supreme Court precedent on state action, splits with every other circuit to consider the issue, and limits the ability of parents to choose the best education for their children. Judge Harvey Wilkinson said in a dissenting opinion, to a great many people, dress codes represent an ideal of chivalry that is not patronizing to women, but appreciative and respectful of them. We reached out to Peltier's attorney, the ACLU, but did not hear back before broadcast time. CDS said in the email that it will continue to provide an excellent education to its students. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, community leaders in a Southern California city held a memorial after two police officers were killed in the line of duty. NTD reporter Jackie Rios heard from officials who are mourning the loss, as well as details about the case. And on the ice tonight, the Stanley Cup Finals begin with two-time defending champion Tampa Bay looking for number three. NTD's Dave Martin breaks down the matchup. That and more coming up. A community mourned the death of two El Monte police officers who were shot on Tuesday. The suspect ambushed the two officers during a domestic violence call and died after a shootout. NTD's Jackie Rios heard from city officials. The Almonte Police Department is grieving the loss of two other officers who were shot and killed on Tuesday afternoon while responding to reports of a stabbing at a local motel. The suspect was also shot and killed. The mayor, as well as law enforcement leadership, came out to express their condolences on Wednesday. The city identified the two officers as Corporal Michael Paredes and Officer Joseph Santana. We're heartbroken here in the city of Almani um, to have lost two of our officers um, in such a tragic shooting. Um, our hearts are, you know, going out to the families. These two officers are, are gentlemen that grew up in our city. Around 4.45 p.m., officers from the Almonte Police Department responded to reports of a stabbing at a motel between a boyfriend and a girlfriend. 
After arriving at the Siesta Inn, the suspect allegedly fired upon the two. Authorities said the suspect then fled from the hotel room into the parking lot. Officers and the suspect exchanged more gunfire. Uh, the two officers were transported to uh, County USC Medical Center, where they passed away earlier this evening. Uh, the suspect was also struck by gunfire, and he was pronounced uh, deceased at the scene. Officials say the woman involved in the initial possible stabbing call was a suspect's girlfriend. She is being interviewed by detectives. The community of Almonte has placed a memorial in front of City Hall to honor the two officers. Police from neighboring cities also came to pay their respects Tuesday night and held a procession for the two fallen officers. We had dispatchers come in from several other cities as well, everyone offering to cover shifts so that our police officers could be with, with their brothers who had passed in the line of duty. A friend of the rookie officer who requested to not be filmed says it was a big loss for everyone. He was a very humble, um, courageous, brave guy. Uh, he put literally everyone before him. He would go into the line of fire before anyone else. He was that one guy you can always trust to have your back. The Almonte Police Department and other members of the community say they are left heartbroken. The men and women of Almonte Police Department as well as the community of Almonte is grieving. I've heard that the only way to take the sting out of death is to take the love out of life. And believe me, they were loved. These two men were loved. They were good men. Officials say the investigation is in its preliminary stages and will be ongoing. Jackie Rios, NTD News, California. And staying in California, San Francisco has recently seen a few successful and significant recalls. One is for the Board of Education, and the most recent is the district attorney. One former official explains why this may indicate the city is changing. A former San Francisco County supervisor said that there is a ground-level change happening in San Francisco. Tony Hall explained to California Insider's CMAC Karami the signs indicating why the city is changing. This city is nothing compared to what it used to be. And the average person living there is saying, okay, we're tired of it. So we're seeing, the, we're seeing a change. I think we are seeing a ground-level change. The most recent indicator is the recall of the district attorney, Tresa Boudin. People are beginning to wake up a little bit. Yes. Um, I was just recently at a big meeting downtown, and there was a lot of the downtown property owners, the store owners, and they're getting fed up with what's going on because the stores are closing and windows are getting broken constantly. They've, they, I, I think San Francisco is ready for a change. Three of the seven-member city school board were recalled in February. Parents rallied, saying they prioritized their own interests over students' education. Organizers said they would have recalled the other four members if rules allowed it. They were a bunch of amateurs, activists, who knew nothing about raising kids. I don't even know if any of them even had any kids. Mm -hmm. Educating them, knew nothing about educating them. They were, they were imposing their own agenda on the public school curriculum in San Francisco. A day after they were recalled, the board's vice president resigned. 
According to Hall, those running for office in the city have to follow the party line, play the game, and have certain similar interests in order to guarantee their position and climb higher. Politics is about, it's the art of selling your ideas to the people. When I ran, my idea was to sell, I'm going to represent the majority of people in my district and nothing else, not what Tony Hall wants. They don't, most guys going in that don't look at things that way today. Hall believes those in power will start changing their usual way of doing things to keep the public's trust. And in Northern California, last week a gas station was selling gas for only 69 cents a gallon. Now the manager is fired. The manager of a Shell gas station in Rancho Cordova, near Sacramento, was fired on Monday for accidentally setting the price per gallon to 69 cents instead of $6.99. Local CBS 13 reported that the former manager acknowledged his mistake. He had put all the prices in, but the last one didn't go. When people found out about the great deal on June 9th, they took it to social media and called their family and friends. Soon a line formed. The gas station lost $16,000. It's not clear if the former manager needs to pay the amount back. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. The Stanley Cup Finals start tonight with two-time defending champion Tampa Bay looking to be the first to three-peat since the New York Islanders of the early 80s. Standing in their way are the Colorado Avalanche. They had the second best record in the regular season will have home ice advantage and win both of the regular season matchups. Colorado has been the highest scoring team in the postseason, averaging more than four and a half goals a game. But Tampa Bay is allowing roughly half that output in these playoffs and goalie Andre Vasilevsky is a big reason why. Last year's Conn Smythe Trophy winner as playoff MVP, Vasilevsky is putting up similar numbers this year. He was a big reason the Lightning got past Toronto and Florida already the two highest scoring teams in the regular season. Colorado has been off for more than a week and is expected to get back injured forwards Nazem Kadri and Andrew Cogliano for tonight's Game 1. The Lightning, meanwhile, are getting back first-line center Braden Point after missing a month with a leg injury. Sports Illustrated has been the leader in sports media since it first debuted back in 1954. DeGrace SI's cover has always been considered an honor. But the popular magazine has come under recent fire for their article on a high school football coach. He was fired for praying on the field and now has taken his case to the Supreme Court. SI's article entitled A Prayer in Court When Faith and Football Teamed Up Against American Democracy was more than just informational though, as SI's Twitter account describes his Supreme Court case as an erosion of the bedrock of American democracy. In it, writer Greg Bishop leans on five legal scholars who he says are independent and have no vested interest in the outcome. Three of the scholars define those on Kennedy's side as white Christian nationalists, and four of the five lump Kennedy's supporters together into a group of people who, according to the article, live in a country they claim to no longer recognize, while pointing to a black president being elected as evidence of it, among other things. The article ends with a Bible verse, Matthew 6-5, that the side opposing Kennedy uses to debunk his freedom of religion argument. The verse says in part, to not be like hypocrites who love to pray in public so they can be seen by others. Former NFL player Jay Feely, who also prayed on the field, 
said in a tweet, it was a disappointing article and that freedom of religion is different than freedom from religion. Other Twitter users simply called it a bad take, a misunderstanding of separation of church and state, or pointed to the hypocrisy of school curriculum that teaches critical race theories in public schools versus not allowing a coach the freedom to pray on a school football field. As for Kennedy's case, it was heard in the Supreme Court in late April, and a decision is expected soon. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, a brutal attack on women sparks outrage throughout China. An expert says it's far from an isolated incident and blames it on what he calls a systemic problem. And despite an 11th hour legal ruling by a European court, the British government says it will press ahead with its plan to send asylum seekers to Rwanda. The decision to ground the flight last night sparked uproar from conservative lawmakers and calls to withdraw from the court. Find out more after this short break. NTD's Capital Report. It's about getting answers. Cutting through the fog of politics. It's about your questions and our chances to ask. What is the net impact of the American Carson Graves? Thank you for joining us. We're speaking to those in power to find out what does this mean for the people. We're here so you are in the know. Nine men were arrested over the weekend after graphic footage of a brutal attack on women sparked national outrage. The incident triggered heated discussion over safety issues in China. An expert says it's not a matter of a single case in China, but rather part of a system problem. And just a warning, the footage we're about to show you may be disturbing for some viewers. A late night dinner turned violent in northern China. Graphic surveillance video of what follows unleash fear and outrage across the country. It shows a man approaching one of the women. He touches her back, an unwanted advance. She pushes him away. He slaps her in response. The assault escalates. A scuffle breaks out as she and her friends try to defend themselves. The woman is dragged outside by her hair, hit with a beer bottle. The men relentlessly kick her as one yells, beat her to death. Her friend's head hits the pavement with a thud. The viral video sparked uproar, not just over the brazen brutality of the attack, but the indifference from bystanders, with only women seen intervening. A woman at the scene called the police and told authorities the following. According to state media, before this happened, I always thought that going out to dinner at night was a perfectly normal thing. But now I have some sort of PTSD. Authorities said Saturday that two women sustained severe injuries were being treated at a hospital. Two other women suffered minor injuries. After the incident was exposed online, more than 10 people reported similar cases on social media. One woman from the same city said a gang had kidnapped and held her hostage for 16 hours, beating her during that time. She also said the gang was under the protection of local police. Soon after, local police called her, asking that she delete the post. 
The woman recorded the call and posted it online. U.S.-based China affairs analyst Tang Jingyuan says the incident isn't a one-off. He says it reflects a common problem in Chinese society, one he says is the result of decades of the Chinese communist regime's rule. He notes that the regime has instilled the idea in people that power is truth, meaning if you have power, you can make your words come true by making people believe them. The public worships power, kneels to power, and bullies the weak. Instead of being ashamed, people are proud of it. It is this social ethos and value orientation that the Chinese Communist Party has instilled for many years, that power is the ultimate truth. So far, authorities have detained nine people involved in the restaurant incident. Local police have ramped up patrols on the streets in the area. Authorities claim the woman and her friend are in stable condition. Yet unverified videos show what is believed to be one of their brutally beaten bodies lying motionless on a gurney in the hospital, bloodied and bandaged. One person who claimed to be an insider even said one of the women died of her injuries. That claim remains unconfirmed as media have been blocked from talking to the victims and their families. Horrific footage there. Moving now to Britain, the British Home Secretary insists the government will press ahead with its plans to send asylum seekers to Rwanda despite an 11th-hour legal ruling by a European court which halted the first departure. And following uproar from conservative politicians on the matter of British sovereignty, Downing Street did not rule out withdrawing from the European court, saying all options are on the table. This report comes from NTD's Malcolm Hudson. Home Secretary Priti Patel said the government will not accept that it has no rights to control its own borders. It follows a last-ditch legal battle by a European court, which blocked the first flight carrying asylum seekers to Rwanda late on Tuesday night. Speaking in Parliament on Wednesday, Patel insisted the government will continue with the policy. This government will not be deterred from doing the right thing. We will not be put off by the inevitable legal last-minute challenges, nor we will allow mobs, Madam Deputy Speaker, to block removals. We will not stand idly by and let organised crime gangs who are despicable in their nature and their conduct, evil people, treat human beings as cargo. Patel said she was surprised by the European Court of Human Rights, or ECHR, intervention, which overruled domestic UK court decisions on the policy. The Rwanda policy means sending asylum seekers and illegal immigrants to the African country, where they can then apply for asylum there. It also seeks to deter human traffickers who profit by transporting people across the English Channel. Speaking in response to Patel, Shadow Minister Yvette Cooper said Patel spent half a million pounds chartering a plane she never expected to fly. This isn't a long-term plan, it is a short-term stunt. Everyone can see it. It's not serious policy, it's shameless posturing and she knows it. It's not building consensus, it's just pursuing division. It is government by gimmick. Attorney General Suela Braverman said many people are frustrated that a foreign court prevented the flight from taking off. She said, many people will have assumed that we took control back of our borders when we left the European Union. The ECHR is not an EU institution, so its influence has not been affected by Brexit. When asked about whether the government is considering pulling out of the ECHR, Braverman said, all options are on the table. Various Tory MPs have called to exit the European court. In response to criticism regarding the ethics of the Rwanda policy, Yolande Mokolo, 
A spokeswoman for the Rwandan government said that Rwanda is already providing refuge to more than 130,000 refugees. She said they are accepting migrants and refugees from all over the world. But Makolo said many migrants have misconceptions about what Rwanda is actually like. And to be quite honest, some of this is perpetuated by the media. Uh, you know, that does not reflect the, the reality of, of, of our countries. So we, they should, uh, you know, uh, we will give them an opportunity to see what it's like uh, to live in this country. We do not consider living in one punishment. We don't think anyone should. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London. Coming up, a performing arts group on a mission to revive traditional Chinese culture. We'll hear what audience members had to say after watching the show. Stay tuned. Each year, several groups of artists based in New York travel around the world with a mission to revive the essence of Chinese culture through performing arts. Shen Yun Performing Arts has received praise from around the world, with many calling it a rejuvenating experience. It is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Awesome. Last weekend, Shen Yun performed in five different cities around the world. It's like a painting. It's like you're watching a visual painting and dance. It was really beautiful. I can't, I can't express how much I enjoyed it. Invigorating. It's very enlightening and invigorating. The show was an absolutely perfect blend of color, music, and dance. It's like a dream, permeating the skin with authenticity. As I'm telling you this, I'm starting to feel it again. For many, Shen Yun is not only a dance performance, it is an experience for the body, mind, and spirit. Just very, uh, very relaxed, right? I mean, I felt like my blood pressure went down. <laughs> After tonight, I'm convinced, you know, that um, it has healing powers, right? For me, today is a spiritual experience. I had to remind myself to breathe. Because of the excitement, I almost forgot to breathe. In suspense. It's the messaging in an art form that will just lift you up and take you away. Shen Yun's mission is to revive genuine traditional Chinese culture before communism. I think it's a great mission because uh, I, I would, my personal hope was always to see China have a cultural revival of their past culture, and I hope they do. Well, we support everything that it stands for. We support China before communism and would love to see it come back to its full glory. The persecution and genocide of the Falun Gong, Falun Dafa, and the Uyghurs must end. And I'm so glad that uh, this, this performance is here to spread the word because it's so important to so many millions of people here as well as China. Ancient Chinese civilization placed great emphasis on the divine. Shen Yun aims to keep this tradition alive today, portraying values such as faith, benevolence, and respect for the heavens. Well, I think that the stories are so important because of the messages that they give. And it's really wonderful to feel the heartfelt kind of message of compassion and, uh, and, and also trying to do the right thing in daily life and watching, watching the heroes struggle, you know, with evil and with, with forces of darkness and, and be triumphant. It's very inspiring. The line where it says, you know, you can't, I'm paraphrasing, but you can't take your personal belongings, your material things with you to the other side. It really makes you stop and think about what's important in life. And I think that's the message I'm taking away tonight. NTD News, New York. 
Inspiring testimony there. Well, that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.